Hey folks, in two weeks, on December 7th and 8th, GTM is holding its Storage Summit in San Francisco. This is your chance to network with the biggest names and companies in the storage business, and also pick the brains of our analysts and journalists. Energy Gang listeners who haven't signed up yet get a 15% discount. So you get a discount before Black Friday rolls around or Cyber Monday. Just use the promo code ENERGYGANG at checkout. Energy Gang is all one word. And to find out more, you can go over to greentechmedia.com slash events. Also, a big thank you to our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Mission Solar operates a 200-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. that is operating 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. America's booming solar industry now employs over 200,000 people, and Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's facility in San Antonio, Texas, employs 400 U.S. workers, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Find out more about Mission's solar cells and modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Exactly two weeks after the election, we have more clues about how President-elect Donald Trump may form a domestic energy policy and position America against the rest of the world on climate. Now keep in mind, these are only clues, bits of insider information from the transition team, some new hires, and some deeper portraits of the people guiding Trump's early energy policy. And that's where we find ourselves, dealing with a lot of speculation. We're all in new territory here. And the experts, analysts, world leaders, and business people all chiming in on what the Trump era represents are, well, coming from the same place. There are way more unknowns than knowns at this point. That doesn't mean, however, there's a lack of things to talk about. There has been a lot of compelling reporting over the last couple of weeks that's helped us try to understand the world we're in. I'm recording this introduction after our conversation, because just after taping, Trump hinted in a conversation with the New York Times that he would, quote, have an open mind about the Paris Climate Accord. That now has everyone speculating further. The point is, this is a hard exercise. So we thought it would be valuable to stick just to Trump's energy and climate policy again this week, because a lot of people are trying to figure this out, and we got a good response to our post-election show. So the gang was joined by Lisa Friedman, the editor of E&E Publishing's Climate Wire, whose team has been writing on the Marrakesh climate talks that just wrapped up and the transition team priorities for President-elect Trump. She joined us last year from the Paris climate talks, and she's been focused on this wide range of issues. We started the conversation by talking about the climate negotiations that had just wrapped up in Marrakesh, Morocco. So I've had a few conversations with reporters who were there who said the Trump win just completely consumed the place. What did you hear from your team about the Trump effect? It completely consumed the place. Um, and yet at the same time there, you know, what you really seem to see coming out of Marrakesh, both from activists and the United States delegation still under Obama and diplomats was a, a pretty determined messaging um, that, that Donald Trump can't, won't, won't really want to, might not be able to, the world won't abide by the unraveling of the, the Paris Agreement. Um, yeah, there were two interesting stories that came out of the talks that I want to discuss. And I guess the first one was that 
you have all these countries that four or five years ago were hesitant to sign on to a global climate agreement. And I'm thinking in particular, China and India, who now say, well, Mr. President-elect, if you're not going to go ahead and lift up, live up to your commitments, then we are going to become climate leaders. China in particular has put its stake in the ground and made some statements to that effect. And then um, you also have questions around what the Trump administration could do to back out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And because it would take years to renegotiate, many people have speculated and some in the Trump transition team have hinted that the, that they might actually go after the UNF Triple C, which formed, which was signed by President H.W. Bush and, and formed the foundation of the climate negotiations. And so that could be a real blow to diplom international diplomacy. Um, that's not just focused on the Paris Climate Agreement. That's like the underlying diplomatic um, structure of what we've seen over the last 20 years or so. So anyway, just can you just talk about those two themes, one being the positive theme coming out of countries that may have been hesitant to act, and then what the Trump administration might actually be able to do? So first of all, let's just put out there that this this could have been a trial balloon, right? I mean, the, the Trump administration uh, folks on their transition team, let it be known via sources that one of the things that they were considering was withdrawing from the, as you say, the underlying treaty, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. You know, that was certainly a well-timed well to provoke, uh, you know, real outrage and fear in the international community. Um, could it happen? Sure. Um, if, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of debate over whether and how difficult it would be to withdraw from the UNFCCC, which was ratified by President Bush um, in 1992, President H.W. Bush, um, after receiving the Senate's consent pursuant to Article 2 of the Constitution. Um, constitutional scholars like Dan Badansky, who has given these, these issues a lot of thought, um, believe that then withdrawing from the treaty might require the Senate's consent. Others disagree. Um, that's certainly a fight that we could see play out, um, you know, in, in the coming in the coming months. As for how the world is going to react, you know, I think the initial the initial thoughts and and something that was mentioned, you know, on the podcast here the other just after the election, you know, the the assumption I think was the day after the election was that gosh, if the U.S. doesn't live up to its commitments, China won't either, India won't either, Brazil won't either. Um, pretty quickly, we saw countries saying, no, that's not true. And others, in fact, like China, very willing um, to fill the void that uh, United States might left might leave. Um, there's a lot of possibilities in there. Um, and I think we should divide up some of these country categories. Maybe what China would do is different than how, say, India would react. I think there's maybe more um, questions about whether India would meet its <clears throat> pardon targets and and let's remember that that theirs are um contingent heavily on on about 2.5 trillion in um investment and assistance and in getting to some of their very very ambitious renewable energy targets but china has said time and again that it will meet its targets no matter what the united states does um and they have signaled and others have said that they would be very likely 
if not uh, eager to assume the soft power um, that comes along with helping poorer countries build wind farms, build solar farms, um, prepare for uh, the impacts that climate change are going to bring. So I think that, you know, I think the first point there is that this really is vindication for the efforts that myself and others have taken to prove to the world that this is the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet, right? I mean, China and India are doing this because they think it's in the well-being of their economies and their people, not because of any other sort of magnanimous reason. Um, but separately, I think that that your last point um, is belied by the fact that OPEC and Export-Import Bank, as well as European Investment Bank, et cetera, is still the largest funders of a lot of this technology around the world. And so regardless of what the Trump administration does, I can't imagine them denying U.S. companies the right to export their goods and services to increase manufacturing jobs in the United States. I think that's a great point. I think a lot of people are, are um, depending on the private sector to... To, to make the case really to the Trump administration um, that this is that this is not about um, uh, you know that, that, that this is heavily about creating jobs in the United States and that this is part of the US national interest. So why would they have to make this case though right I mean the vast majority of wind farms and solar farms are regulated at the state level. Um, Amazon and all these other companies that are moving forward are not doing so under the permission structure of the federal government. So I see your point, Jigger, and I think maybe we can get into that on the domestic policy front. But I think you're conflating two different things here. And, and I still think, as you've said previously, when we had this discussion with Lisa, when we were talking about the Paris climate talks, that the business community has such a strong role to play in proving that this kind of activity is underway, that it truly does represent one of the biggest wealth creation opportunities on the planet. And that bleeds into how negotiators talk to one another and how countries communicate this stuff. And so the discussion is so different from what it was five or six years ago when countries were really wondering, how am I going to implement this? And now many of these technologies are economic. The business case is clear. And so I think, you know, it clearly does play a role, particularly when you have this new policy uncertainty, the business community now needs to, to lead. Yeah. And Stephen, right before the Marrakesh talks, I was at the World Economic Forum meetings in Dubai, and I'm co-chair of the Future of Energy Council. And those are a mixture of corporate players and civil society, a lot of non-governmental organizations, regulators. And in, in addition to, as Lisa's talking about, people just being kind of distraught about what's happening and this, our election really being the top number one topic of conversation in the plenary panels and the keynotes in every single aspect of it. There was also a real sense of we are moving forward. My group has the future of energy has the majors, the oil and gas majors, plus the sort of the disruptors and everybody's in agreement fossils being phased out. Um, distributed energy resources are on the upswing. Storage is critical. We have to give access. Energy access is a huge piece. And then also that there are people that need to be brought along with this. And I think we saw that in our election, that there are a lot of people in older industries that need to be brought along. But the but the the um, the message from the corporates is definitely, we're not going to stop investing. This is really about business. And this is global. And whether or not the U.S. Reneges on the clean power plan, 
these investments are moving forward. You know, Catherine, hearing you speak about the reaction um, from the World Economic Forum, I mean, it really strikes me what a difference this is and the attitude that that we're hearing from countries um, from Kyoto, right? I mean, this is is the second, this will be presumably the second time in as many decades that the United States has joined and then dropped out of a global climate agreement. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still not sure if diplomats and others are just being overly diplomatic <laughs> and very careful um, about what they say. But I, I mean, I fully expected at some point during this week to write a headline um, reflecting real anger and, and um, you know, concern that the U.S. could not be, you know, I, I expected to write a headline that said something like, world to U.S. fool us once, shame on, <laughs> shame on you, fool us twice, uh, you know, but but we're not hearing that kind of response from, from dim- diplomats and from negotiators. And I wonder if part of that is because the business story has changed so much, as you're, as you're saying, um, that there really is a sense that th- these goals can happen um, no matter what the United States does. Yeah, Lisa, I saw that um, some of the countries were even floating the idea of taxing U.S. imports to their countries that are highly carbon intensive. I wondered if you had heard much about that and if that had gained any traction. I think we're reading and reporting the same stories you're looking at. I mean, this is, you know, everything everything old is new again, right? When I first um, started writing about these issues uh, at the end of the Bush administration, um, there was a lot of talk from Republicans and others in the U.S. about uh, imposing carbon tariffs on countries that don't act if we act. Um, and even back then, there were countries saying to the effect, if you want to play that game, we are <laughs> we are happy to do so. Um, and now you're seeing some countries considering taking some of these measures against the United States. We'll see if that we'll see if that plays out. I, I don't I don't know that that's a um, that that's a real threat at this point. Well, I you know I think that another way to spin that is that the. You know, Marcus Aurelius said that the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. So part of this is actually saying that Donald Trump is doing the world a favor by testing everyone's resolve and finding out that everyone is actually willing to, you know, brainstorm ways forward. I mean, that that really does, you know, I think change the nature of this entire argument that we've been having for the last 30 years. So you've also done a lot of domestic reporting, your team, and I want to get to some of that. Um, You've got some new details on the transition team. We sufficiently talked about the Clean Power Plan um, last time we had this discussion after the election. Maybe there's some more details there that we can talk about. Jigger, I want to turn to you first before we talk about some of these stories related to the transition team. I I heard from a number of listeners when I was traveling last week that they were... um, Looking for some Jiggershaw outrage um, <laughs> after the election. You know, it might not be necessarily Donald Trump outrage, but they were looking for some of your passion. And, and, and I think a lot of people um, 
see you as an outlet. <laughs> and uh, many people were confused after the election. And I'm just curious if you want to highlight any of your overall thoughts on where clean tech stands domestically under a Trump administration. Well, I look, I think that there are four multi-billion dollar sectors, right? There's fracking, ethanol, wind and solar. And the vast majority of all of those four sectors are in rural areas. And we are pumping billions upon billions of dollars into those markets. And so I don't see anything changing there. Like I just I, I, I just find the whole thing to be so like sort of crazy how Donald Trump manipulates the media and gets us talking about his agenda as opposed to reality in our agenda. Yeah. So I would say rather than outrage, we have to have vigilance because I think that there may be um, there, there certainly may be some defensive things we have to do to make sure that we don't lose ground on the federal side. I think I agree that on the state front, there are a lot of battles worth fighting where we'll continue to win and investment has indeed shifted. But I don't think we should just ignore the fact that the federal side is going to be very active because there is, in fact, no more gridlock. So at this point, we we just can't really say what's going to happen to growth rates with renewables because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, in general, I think most people believe that the CPP will get torn down. And um, although that will impact, um, you know, states that don't necessarily have a robust clean energy market, in the states that are already leading, the economics are front and center here. It's not necessarily just just policy. So well, and we've already reached our 2024 goals under the clean power plan. Totally. And and also all of our base forecasts at GM, GTM Research don't even t take into consideration the clean power plan. So all the major growth numbers that you see coming out of our team don't even take that policy driver into account. So we're going to see really enormous growth no matter what. I guess the question is what happens um to the mechanics of decision making at some of the most important agencies, most notably the EPA and the DOE. And Climate Wire has done some great reporting on some of these uh, transition team members. Myron Ebel, who we mentioned on the last show, is the transition team head of the Environmental Protection Agency. He's a really interesting guy. We didn't go into his background much, Lisa, but what do we know about him beyond the fact that he's a climate skeptic? Um, he seems to be the kind of guy who will actually lash out at Republicans who want to maybe see climate action or support a carbon tax. Yeah. Um, well, first, can I just give a, a plug that if, you know, I mean, some of the reporters that we, and we're playing the parlor game of who's going where, like everybody else. But, you know, for folks who are interested in energy and climate, um, you know, reporters like Evan Lehman, Robin Bravender, Kevin Bogardis, um, uh, you know, on, on the wider e, e team um, have been have been just doing a tremendous job as, as, as everybody um, of really getting in there and trying to figure out who folks are and what they mean for our issues. So someone like Myron Ebel, what, um, what <laughs> the fact that he is a climate, ske climate skeptic is in fact the, the, uh, the main, the main piece of news about him, but, but not just, um, you know, not just a, a skeptic, you're right, but a, um, you know, very, um, appears very ideologically driven. Um, you know, what, what uh, Evan, you know, sort of reported in, in a big profile piece he has out yesterday was that, um, you know, this is not someone driven by, by uh, corporate 
um, backing necessarily, but by a real ideological concern about uh, the science behind climate change. Um, and some of that may have been shaped by his background. And has a very deep skept he has a very deep skepticism of government, which tends to influence his um his views on climate change. I mean, he really sort of despises despises government in, in many respects. That's what we hear from a lot of people. And, you know, I mean there's this very eye-opening um uh, exchange that that Evan writes about in the the opening of his story where um a gentleman who was part of a, a the libertarian R Street Institute that supports a carbon tax um uh was was planning to be was planning to to push for this on the hill and he went to um Myron Ebel not to get support he knew he wouldn't get that but um but just to to let him know that this was happening and and uh he told Kevin, you know, Myron just cut to the chase and said, listen, you're wrong and we are going to beat you. Um, I think I think um, that kind of attitude towards not just climate change, but policies that open the door to addressing climate change and, and anything that, you know, are, are going to come under attack. I think this is par for the course for Trump, right? I don't think Myron Ebel is going to run policy within the Trump administration, nor do I think that Steve Bannon is going to do anything in the, in the Trump administration. In the end, it's probably going to be Mitch McConnell that runs the Trump administration because most of the stuff he's not going to allow through the Senate, right? I mean, it just it feels to me like he's just bringing in these firebrand people to make sure that his white nationalists are happy. I don't know if I could speak to that, but I think that they're, you know, uh, if someone is bringing people into their administration, one has to assume that they will help shape that administration's policies. Myron Ebel right now is, is just leading the transition. He's not actually in the administration, but I think we, there's every reason to think that Steve Bannon will help shape the president's thinking on climate change. Um, Erica Bolstadt, one of our reporters, has a terrific story that came out earlier this week looking at um, how he's attempted to do just that via Breitbart News. But on the other sense, you're right. I mean, we're, we are getting exactly what the, the Trump uh, camp, you know, what, what, what Donald Trump campaigned on. He is going to drain the swamp. And that's what we're seeing in, in some of the names that he's been putting forward so far. If you believe what Myron Ebel has supposedly said, and that there are other people like him surrounding the Trump administration, then you don't have a lot of Republicans who are going to reach out to the folks who are trying to push for climate action around the edges in the, the House and Senate. I just I don't see where there are major alliances forged on that issue. And and what's interesting to me is that in your in, in Evan's piece, Lisa, they talked about the R Street Institute. And that's an that's an organization that is really gotten a lot of power in D.C. under the radar. I mean, I understand that they're hiring a lot of people. We've had Eli Lehrer on the podcast before, and that's a libertarian think tank that is starting to gain a lot more traction in D.C., and they have pushed for a carbon tax for many years now. And then hearing our street get shut down in that story, I mean, it's only one indicator, right? It's an anecdote at this point. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but like they're an organization that was once seen as a powerful 
push for a carbon tax. And now everything's up in the air again. Well, I think it's a it's a really good point. And I think, you know, to me, one of the many interesting stories to, to look for is, you know, what what happens to the small but burgeoning Republican climate movement? Um, you know, what where do folks like Bob Inglis, um, you know, go, <laughs> um, you know, po po policy, you know, in, in a policy sense, um, where does, you know, Republican and, and you know, some of these other groups, um, you know, e evangelical groups that have made climate change, uh, you know, um, a big issue, what role do they have in this administration, in this Congress? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I think I think that's an interesting group to watch. Yeah, and actually, I think one thing is that when we're deploying projects and creating jobs on the state level, those are voters and those people can get to their members of Congress and you can start educating and making members of Congress. Maybe they're not going to be pro-climate, but they'll be pro-innovation, pro-job creation that is about clean energy. And I think that's where we're going to start rebuilding our support. We already have a lot of support from those members. We just have to really make those linkages quite strong going forward. Is this going to be another era where we can work on climate change as long as we don't say the words climate change? <laughs> that era, it just seems like that era will never end in D.C. <laughs> um, I'm curious from you, Lisa and, and Catherine, what's the mood in D.C. generally? I mean, I, I moved up here to Boston in February and I um, was kind of curious what the what people are feeling within the city itself, because the character of the city changes with each new administration. I've talked to some friends, but I'm just curious from a, a reporter's perspective or maybe a more strict policy perspective, whether or not you're noticing anything around the edges yet that it is starting to creep into the city. Well, I mean, the day of after the election, I mean, it was like it was like death. Everybody was walking around with their head down. Um, people have been confused, not knowing what to do. And then there's this there's this ban on lobbyists. So a lot of people that thought they'd be able to get in on the Trump administration can't even do it because then they're banned from lobbying for five years. So there's kind of a lot of confusion. I think the most fun thing is the Obama-Biden memes on uh, Twitter and Instagram. That's kind of kept everybody going. Yeah, from a reporter side, I mean, I, so so yes, I mean, the, the, does a new administration, do Republican, Democrat administrations bring a different, um, you know, flavor into into the city? Sure, but it's obviously way too early for that. Um, you know, I, I would say that right now, you know, after the, um, since election day, it has been non-stop for reporters. Um, it has been, you know, go, 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 trying to figure out who's on the transition teams, who might be tapped for what. Um, there is, um, you know, like Jigar said, I mean, Donald Trump is a, is a master of owning the, um, the media cycle. And, and so everybody kind of recognizes that there is a little bit of an apprentice, uh, drama going on where where candidates are being brought in but only one person knows who who the winner is going to be um and and we're trying to cut through that and tell some meaty stories about things like whether trump can make good on these promises that he's made to coal country what it will take to 
cancel or renegotiate Paris? Can it be done? Um, what the world reaction is going to be? Um, and and so hopefully we're you know along with with doing big profiles on the folks who could be running energy and climate policy in the in the next four to eight years. Um, um, hopefully we're we're providing readers with the whole the whole gamut. So let's pivot over to, to finish up this discussion to recognize that the fact that there are a lot of state level things happening post-election. And we saw three major ballot initiatives in Nevada, Florida, and Washington Washington State. Of course, in Washington State, the carbon tax that Jigger was a, a big proponent of failed. But in Nevada, a ballot initiative won with overwhelming majority to de- to start a process of deregulating the electricity market there. And Nevada, of course, is a state with a very politically connected monopoly utility, Envy Energy. And then in Florida, Amendment 1, which would have kind of created this murky environment for uh, regulatory environment for uh, solar companies, was shut down despite $25 million being spent uh, by utilities. So this was a couple of good wins and shows that the activity still continues on the state level. Catherine, I know you were tracking those closely. So what do we glean from those developments after the election? Well, I'd like to hear what Jigger has to say about the Washington uh, state amendment. But the one in Nevada is interesting because um, the way it was written is very business friendly, very competition, very sort of free market. So it was, you know, amending the Constitution to provide a law to establish open competitive retail electric utility, mar- electric en- energy market that prohibits monopolies and exclusive franchises. And I think that's um, a path forward in a lot of states is trying to make sure that this is about open competition. This is about business and job growth. So it was good to see that that happened in Nevada. And then in Florida, you know, you need 60% to pass an amendment and the utilities put $26 million into this effort and they still lost. They only got 50% of the vote uh, to a little over 49% for the nose. So that was also a big win on the state level. I think those are going to continue to be really important going forward and they'll play into what happens federally, but we can still do state by state battles. Yeah, no, I was hugely impressed by the win in Nevada and in Florida. Um, now, note that Nevada has to pass the ballot initiative again in two years for it to go into force. Um, but I think the lesson that came out of Washington State is that there's going to be a rethinking as to whether the renewable energy industry should be tied to the hip um, with um, unreliable environmental groups. Yeah, Lisa, do you want to chime in on anything? Um, you know, for us at Green Tech Media, I think these developments show that our coverage is going to continue to focus on the state level, both in legislatures and in regulatory bodies. And um, I'm wondering if you see that similarly. I think you're exactly right. I mean, when we um, got together as a newsroom and we're looking at, okay, how is our coverage going to change? Um, obviously, less of a focus on, on clean power plan and, and the regulatory side, um, while we're still going to have you know, surely many months of unraveling of regulations. When we look out and see where are the big climate stories that they are going to be in the states and in the courts. Um, courts, because, you know, with a with a Republican administration and a Republican Congress, you know, we, we know that we're going to be seeing a lot of the big um, debates playing out in the courts and, and surely environmental groups are, are gearing up for that. Um, 
But the states, I think, is where some of the most exciting work is going to be happening and where some of the most interesting political dramas are going to play out, um, whether it's, you know, Nevada, like you like you mentioned, but also, you know, what happens to uh, the politics around climate policy as wind power grows even stronger in, in Oklahoma, for example. Um, you know, those are, are the kinds of stories that that we're keeping a, a, a keen eye on as well. I mean, I, I do see that California, New York, and others are going to double down on positive legislation. But I'm curious, Catherine, on your side, whether you think that, you know, like the visceral reaction that Republicans have against environmental groups means that the renewable energy companies have to you know, carry their own water without their environmental groups. Well, I think you just have different ways to message. And there certainly is a, a much more conservative messaging um, that can that can really be effective in some states. As in Georgia, they were able to do some really conservative messaging. And I think that could happen elsewhere in the southeast, um, because what you don't want is to create the sense of that this is only because of some kind of a green climate change issue. So certainly the environmentalists have... Um, you, you know, they have a base of support so they can go forward with their base. But I think the business community also needs to learn how to speak a little bit differently. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up that does have a connection to um, the U.S. Congress is PURPA, and that's the ability of um, projects, small renewable energy projects, to be able to sell to utilities. And this is something to watch out for in North Carolina, which right now is the second in the nation in renewables and solar development. And 60% of the nation's PURPA projects are in North Carolina. And the utility, Duke Energy, is starting to back away from those. And, and PURPA is one thing we really have to watch for in Congress because there have been several proposals out there to try to dismantle it. Yeah, the purpose strategy can be a risky one because there could be federal changes. And then also at the state level, when you look at uh, setting rates for avoided cost, I know a number of states, utilities have petitioned for changing avoided cost rates and in, in Utah and North Carolina and some other states. So it can be a risky strategy if you're a solar developer going um, forward with a purpose strategy, but also lucrative too, if you can make it work. Man, there are so many issues to talk about here. Um, we dissected a few additional ones with Lisa Friedman, who is the editor of Climate Wire at E&E Publishing. She joined us from Washington, D.C. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Stephen. All right. Well, that brings us to the last segment of the show where we tell our listeners something they do not know. Catherine Hamilton, you're up first. Yeah, so I sort of alluded to it earlier, but when I go uh, for Thanksgiving down into Appalachia, I go to a place outside Roanoke, and anybody who wants to see my Twitter handle, at Clean Grid View, oh, and you feel free to follow me while you're there, um, you can, you'll see a picture of where I end up going every Thanksgiving. While I'm down there, I'm going to be, rather than um, kvetching about Trump and what might or might not happen, I'm going to be looking out for those Obama-Biden memes, which it really memes, which have been really, really hilarious on Twitter. I have to say, I haven't even seen that many of them. Yeah, just do a search obama Biden memes. And it's these these conversations that they have. They, they take a picture and then they create these fake conversations about all kinds of things. And it's really hilarious. All right, cool. I'll check those out. Jigger, what's yours? Well, so I um, just wanted to point you guys to an uh, op-ed that I just did with David Duchovny. Yes, that David Duchovny. On yeah, how renewables I saw that. I, and we, a couple of us looked at each other in the office and said, did Jigger Shaw just do an op-ed with the David Duchovny on nuclear and renewables? Well, you know. Yeah, it's great. We're entering the X-Files. <laughs> 
or Californication. Tell, tell us what it's about. <laughs> well, just how renewable energy and nuclear have to stop going at each other and start being, you know, friends and working together to get their outcomes. I mean, you see that right now in Illinois where Con Ed is trying one more time to throw renewable energy under the bus and get the votes to save their nuclear plants where they could have gotten this resolved a long time ago had they just worked collaboratively with the renewable energy industry. Well, I couldn't agree more. You've raised that point a few times. I do agree with it. And um, good to see David Duchovny jumping in with uh, with into the renewables game. I didn't realize that he was into those issues. He's a really smart guy. It's amazing how re- well-researched a lot of these guys are. Well, it's a good piece. Go check it out at the Huffington Post, and uh, we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Um, one brief one for me. We've got a new piece of research out looking at sol- solar loans and leases. And next year, 55% of all residential solar installations will be financed by um, loans or a cash purchase. So that's the first time since 2011 that loans have overtaken solar leases, which is quite a remarkable turnaround. That was written by Nicole Litvak, who is a senior analyst on the solar team, and she's going to join us on the Interchange uh, next week to talk about that report. And I know, Jigger, that you've been working with her on a two-part piece on small commercial solar. So we'll have that up on the site in a couple of weeks as well. Yeah, well, we have to, we have to find ways to grow this, uh, this solar industry. You're just uh, forging partnerships left and right to publish everywhere. Well, thanks to my two partners, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, we uh, had a really interesting conversation today. I enjoyed it quite a bit. You can find all our conversations on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, any app of your choice. Our email address is podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We love to hear from you. We try to get back to you as soon as possible, and we definitely send your emails around and consider your ideas for future shows. Um, Catherine, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. You too, Stephen and Jigger. And Jigger, you do the same. Um, I I guess you can just hop in your car now that you're already there behind the steering wheel and and drive to wherever you need to go. (laughs) That's right. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to both of you and happy Thanksgiving to our U.S. listeners. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We are the Energy Gang and we'll catch you next week. (music) 